Chapter 9 of The Merry-Go-Round. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Elizabeth Peterson. The Merry-Go-Round. By W. Somerset Maugham. Section 22. But Grace found her husband more obstinate than ever before. And though she used every imaginable device, he remained unmoved. By turns, she was caressing and persuasive, scornful, bitter, and angry. But at length, because of his unperturbed complacency, she was seized by indignant wrath. He was a man who prided himself on the accomplishment of every resolve he formed, and his determination once made, that the Bridgers, at the end of their week's warning, should go. No appeals to his reason or to his emotion would induce him to another mind, though it hurt him infinitely to thwart his wife. Though it was very painful to feel her cold antagonism, his duty seemed to point clearly in one direction, and the suffering it caused made him only more resolute to do it. Paul Castilian had a very high opinion both of the claims his tenants had upon him and of his great responsibilities towards them, and he never imagined for a moment that their private lives could be no concern of his. On the contrary, Convinced that a merciful providence had given him a truth of much consequence, he was fully prepared to answer for all who were thus committed to his charge, and he took his office so seriously that even in London he was careful to inform himself of the smallest occurrences on his estate. To all these people he was a just and not ungenerous master, charitable in their need, sympathetic in their sickness, but arrogated to himself in return for authority over their way of life. In this instant, his moral sense was sincerely outraged. The presence of Fanny Bridger appeared a contamination, and with a singular prudery of some men, he could not think of her case without a nausea of disgust. It horrified him somewhat that Grace not only could defend, but even visit her. It seemed to him that a pure woman should feel only disdain for one who had so fallen. The week passed, and Grace had been able to effect nothing. Bitterly disappointed, angry with her husband, and with herself, she made up her mind that no pecuniary difficulty should add to Fanny's distress. If she had to go, at least it was possible to provide that some measure of happiness should not be unattainable. But here she was confronted by Bridger's obstinate determination not to be separated from his daughter. He had got into his slow brain that the trouble came only because she had gone away, and no argument would convince him that in future little need be feared. Somehow, also he was filled with sullen resentment against the squire, and himself, no less self-willed, refused to yield one inch. He repeated, over and over, that if the girl went, he and his sons must go too. Late in the afternoon of the day before that on which Fanny was to leave forever the village of her birth, Mrs. Castilian sat moodily in the drawing-room, turning over the pages of a periodical while Paul, now and then glancing at her anxiously, read with difficulty a late-published blue book. A servant came in to say that Bridger would like to speak with a squire. Paul rose to go to him, but Mrs. Castilian begged that he might come there. Send him in, said the squire. Bridger entered the room somewhat timidly and stood at the door, cap in hand. It was raining, and the wet of his clothes gave out an unpleasant odor. There was a certain grim savagery about the man, as though his life spent among the wild things in the woods had given him a sort of fawn-like spirit of the earth. 
Well, Bridger, what do you want? Please, Squire. I came to know if I was really to go tomorrow. Are you accustomed to hear me say things I don't mean? I told you that if you did not send away your daughter within a week, I should dismiss you and your sons from my service. The gamekeeper looked down, revolving these words in his mind. Even then he could not bring himself to believe that they were spoken to grim earnest. He felt that if only he could make Mr. Castilian understand how impossible was what he asked, he would surely allow him to stay. There's nowhere Fanny can go. If I send her away, she'll go to the bad altogether. You doubtless know that Mrs. Castilian has promised to provide for her. I have no doubt there are homes for fallen women where she can be looked after. Paul, cried Grace indignantly, how can you say that? Bridger stepped forward and faced the squire. He looked into his eyes with surly indignation. I've served you faithfully, man and boy, for forty years, and I was born in that there cottage I live in now. I tell you, the girl can't go. She's a good girl in her heart. Only she's had a misfortune. If you turn us out, where are we to go? I'm getting on in years, and I shan't find it easy to get another job. It'll mean the workus. He could not express himself, nor show in words his sense of the intolerable injustice of this thing. He could only see that the long years of loyal service counted for nothing, and that the future offered cold and want and humiliation. Paul stood over him, cold and stern. I'm very sorry, he said. I can do nothing for you. You've had your chance, and you've refused to take it. I've got to go tomorrow? Yes. The gamekeeper turned his cap round nervously, and to his face came an expression of utter distress. He opened his mouth to speak, but no words came, only an inarticulate groan. He turned on his heel and walked out. Then Grace went up to Paul desperately. Oh, Paul, you can't do it, she cried. You'll break the man's heart. Haven't you any pity? Haven't you any forgiveness? It's no good, Grace. I'm sorry that I can't fall in with your wishes. I must do my duty. It wouldn't be fair to the other people on the estate if I let this go by without notice. How can you be so hard? He wouldn't see. He couldn't see. That it was out of the question to drive Bridger away callously from the land he loved with all his soul, in one flash of inspiration she realized all that his little cottage signified to him. The woods and coverts, the meadows and trees, the hedges, with all these things his life was bound up, like a growing thing. His roots were in the earth, which had seen his birth and childhood, his marriage, and the growth of his children. She took hold of her husband's arms and looked up into his face. Paul, don't you know what you're doing? We've come nearer to one another of late. I felt a new love grow up in my heart for you, and you're killing it. You won't let me love you. You can't forget that you're this and that and the other. And remember that you're only a man, weak and frail like the rest of us. You hope to be forgiven yourself, and you're utterly pitiless. My darling, it's for your sake also that I must be firm with this man. It's because you are so good and pure that I dare not be lenient. What on earth do you mean? She disengaged herself roughly from his arms and stepped back. Her face, without powder or rouge, was ashen gray, and in her eyes was a look of panic, fear. I can't allow that creature to live in the same place as you, because you're a virtuous and a good woman. It's my duty to protect you from all contact with evil. It horrifies me to think that you may meet her on your walks. Her and her child. Mrs. Castilian's cheeks flamed with red, and there was such a catching at her throat that she put her hand to it. But I tell you, Paul, that compared with me, that woman is innocent and virtuous. Nonsense, my dear, he laughed. Paul. 
I'm not what you think. That woman sinned because she was ignorant and unhappy. But I knew what I was doing. I had everything I wanted, and I had your love. There were no excuses for me. I was nothing better than a wanton. Don't be absurd, Grace. How can you talk such rubbish? Paul, I'm talking perfectly seriously. I've not been a good wife to you. I'm very sorry. It's best that you should know. He stared at her incredulously. Are you mad, Grace? What do you mean? I've been unfaithful. He said nothing. He did not move. But a trembling came over his fleshy limbs, and his face turned deathly white. Still, he could scarcely believe. He went on with dry throat, forcing out the words that came unwillingly. I'm unworthy of love and confidence that you gave me. I've deceived you shamefully. I've committed adultery. The word hit him like a blow, and with a cry of rage, he stepped forward to his wife, cowering before him and seized her shoulders. He seized her roughly, cruelly, with strong hands, so that she set her teeth to repress the cry of pain. What do you mean? Have you been in love with someone else? Tell me who it is. She did not answer, looking at him in terror, and he shook her angrily. He was blind with rage now, in a condition which she had never seen before. Who is it? He repeated. You better tell me. She shrank away from him, but he held her fast with ruthless hands, and he tightened them so that she could have screamed with pain. Reggie Bassett, she cried at last. He released her roughly so that she fell against a table. You dirty little beast, he cried. Mrs. Castilian's breath came quickly. She felt about to faint and steadied herself against the table. She was trembling still with the pain she had suffered. Her shoulders ached from the violence of his hands. He faced her, looked as though even now he scarcely understood what she had said. He passed his hands over his face wearily. And yet I loved you with all my heart. I did everything I could to make you happy. Suddenly he remembered something. The other night, when you kissed me, and I said we must come closer together, what did you mean? I'd just broken with Reggie forever, she gasped. He laughed savagely. You didn't come back to me till he'd thrown you over. She stepped forward, but he put out his hands to prevent her. For God's sake, don't come near me or I shall hit you. She stopped dead, and for a moment they confronted one another strangely. Then again he passed his hands across his face, as though he wished to push away some horrible thing before him. Oh God, oh God, what shall I do? he moaned. He turned away quickly and, sinking in a chair, hid his face and burst into tears. He sobbed uncontrollably with all the agony and the despair of a man who has cast shame from him. Paul, Paul, for heaven's sake, don't cry. I can't bear it. She went up to him and tried to take away his hands. Don't think of me now. You can do what you like with me afterwards. Think of these wretched people. You can't send them away now. He pushed her away more gently and stood up. No, I can't send them away now. I must tell Bridger that he and the girl can stay. Go to them at once, she implored. The man's heart is breaking, and you can give him happiness. Don't let them wait a minute longer. Yes, I'll go to him at once. Paul Castilian seemed now to have no will of his own, but acted as though under some foreign impulse. He went to the door, walking heavily, as if grown suddenly old, and Grace saw him go out into the rain and disappear into the mist of the approaching night. She stood at the window wondering what he would do and imagined, with a shiver of dismay, the shame of proceedings for divorce. She looked at the great trees of Justin as though for the last time and tried to picture to herself the life that awaited her. Reggie would make no offer of marriage, nor, if he did, would she accept, 
since no trace remained of her vehement passion, and she thought of him merely with loathing. She hoped the case going undefended would not excite small attention, and afterwards she was rich enough in her own right to live on the continent as she chose. At all events, peace of sorts would be hers, and she could drag out somewhere the rest of her years. She was thankful now that she had no child from whom separation would be unendurable. Wearily, Grace pressed her eyes. What a fool I've been, she cried. Quickly, the events of her life marshaled themselves before her, and she looked back with shame and horror on her old self, flippant and egotistic, worthless. Oh, I hope I'm not like that now. The minutes passed like hours so that she was surprised because Paul did not return. She glanced at the clock and found that half an hour had gone. The Bridgers' cottage was not more than five minutes' walk from the house, and it was incomprehensible that Paul delayed so long. She was seized with fear of an impending disaster, and the mad thought came that the gamekeeper, without waiting for his master's words in his rage and grief, had committed some horrible deed. She was on the point of sending a servant to see what had become of her husband. Suddenly, she saw him running along the drive towards the house. Dusk had set in, and she could not see plainly. At first she thought herself mistaken, but it was Paul. He ran with little quick steps like a man unused to running, and his hat was gone. The rain pelted down on him. Quickly she flung open the glass doors that led into the garden, and he came in. Paul, what's the matter? she cried. He stretched out his hands to support himself against a chair. He was soaked to the skin, muddy and disheveled. His large, white face was set to an expression of sheer horror, and his eyes started out of his head. For a moment, he pressed his hand to his heart, unable to speak. It's too late, he gasped, and his voice was raucous and strange. It was a dreadful sight. The pompous man, ordinarily so self-composed, all disarrayed and terror-struck. For God's sake, get me some brandy. Quickly she went into the dining room and brought him a glass in the decanter. Though by habit so temperate, that he drank little but claret and water. Now, with shaking hand, he poured out half a tumbler of neat spirit and hastily swallowed it. He took a handkerchief and wiped his face, streaming with rain and sweat, and sank heavily into the nearest chair. Still his eyes stared at her as though filled with some ghastly sight. He made an effort to speak, but no words came. He gesticulated with aimless hands, like a madman. He groaned inarticulately. For heaven's sake, tell me what it is, she cried. It's too late. She threw herself in front of the London Express. She stepped forward impulsively, and then some strange power seemed to pluck her back. She threw up her hands and gave a loud cry of horror. Be quiet, be quiet, he cried angrily. Then words came to him, and he uttered his story rapidly, voluble and hysteric. He was well out of breath and did not think of what he spoke. I went down to the cottage, and Bridger wasn't there. He was at the public house, and I went on. A man met me, running, and said there had been an accident on the railway. I knew what it was. I ran with him, and we came to them, just when they were taking her along. Oh, God, oh, God, I saw her. Oh, Paul, don't tell me. I can't bear it. I shall never get it out of my eyes. And the child? The child's all right. She didn't take it. Oh, what have we done, Paul, you and I? It's my fault, he cried, only mine. Have you seen Bridger? No, they went to tell him and I couldn't bear it any more. Oh, I wish I could get it out of my eyes. He looked at his hands and shuddered. Then he got up. I must go and see Bridger. No, don't do that. Don't see him now when he's mad with drunk and rage. Wait till tomorrow. How are we going to spend the night, Grace? I feel I shall never sleep again. Next day, 
when Mr. Castilian came downstairs, his wife saw that he had slept as badly as herself. For though dressed now very carefully in the rough tweeds of the country gentleman, his face was drawn and white, his eyes heavy with watching. He advanced to kiss her as usual, but on a sudden stopped, and a flush rapidly darkened his cheek. He drew back, and without a word sat down to breakfast. Neither could eat, and after a decent interval, meant to impress the servants that nothing very unusual had happened. Paul rose heavily to his feet. Where are you going? she asked. You better not go to Bridger's. He's been drinking hard all night, and he might hurt you. You know he's violent-tempered. Do you think I should care if he killed me? He answered hoarsely, his face distorted by a look of dreadful pain. Oh, Paul, what have I done? She cried, breaking down. Don't talk of that now. He moved toward the door, and she sprang up. If you're going to see Bridger, I must come too. I'm so afraid. Would you mind if anything happened to me? He asked bitterly. She looked at him with utter pain. Yes, Paul. He shrugged his massive shoulders, and together in silence, they walked along the drive. The fine weather of the last three weeks was gone, and the day was chilly, and an east wind blew. A long white mist lay over the park, and the dripping trees were very cheerless. No sign of life was seen at the Bridger's cottage, but the little garden, usually so trim and neat, was trampled and torn, as though many men had gone carelessly over the beds. Paul knocked at the door and waited, but no answer came. He lifted the latch and, followed by Grace, walked in. Bridger, seated at the table, was looking straight in front of him, stupefied, still with grief and liquor. He gazed vacantly at the intruders as though he recognized them not. Bridger, I've come to tell you how dreadfully sorry I am for the awful thing that has happened. The sound of the voice seemed to bring the man to his senses, for he gave a low cry and lurched forward. What do you want? What have you come for? Couldn't you leave me alone? He stared at Paul, rage gradually taking possession of him. Do you still want me to go, me and the boys? Give us time and we'll clear. I hope you'll stay. I want to do everything I can to make up for the horrible loss. I can't tell you how deeply I blame myself. I would give anything that this dreadful thing hadn't occurred. She killed herself, so as I shouldn't be turned off. You're a hard master. You always was. I'm very sorry. In future, I will try to be gentler to you all. I thought I only did my duty. Mr. Castilian, that man so conscientious of his dignity, had never before spoken to his inferiors in an apologetic tones. Apt to take others to account, he had never dreamed that some day himself might need to make excuses. She was a good girl, after all, said Bridger. In her heart, she was as good as your wife, Squire. Where's the child? asked Grace, almost in a whisper. He turned upon her savagely. Do you want that, too? Aren't you satisfied yet? Has the child got to go, too, before we stay? No, no, she cried hastily. You must keep the child, and we'll do all we can to help you. Paul looked at the man. Won't you shake hands with me, Mr. Bridger? I should like you to tell me you forgive me. Bridger drew back his hands and shook his head. Paul saw that no good could come from staying and turned to the door. The gamekeeper's eyes followed him, caught sight of the gun which leaned against a chair. He stretched out his hand and took it. Grace gave a start but managed to repress her cry of alarm. Squire, he called. Well, Paul turned round and when he saw that the man held the weapon in his hand, he straightened himself. He looked at him steadily. Well, what do you want? Bridger stepped forward and roughly gave the gun into his master's hand. 
Take it and keep it, squire. I swore last night I'd blow your bloody brains out and swing for it. I'm not fit to have this gun yet. Keep it, or if I get in drink, I'll kill you. An indescribable look of pride came into Paul's face, and the humiliation of shame were banished. Grace's heart beat fast when she saw what he was about to do, and a sob broke from her. He gave back the gun. You'll need it for your work, he said coldly. I don't think I'm afraid. I will take my chance of your wanting to shoot me. The man looked with wonder at his master, and then violently flung the gun into the corner of the room. By God, he said. Paul waited for one moment to see if Bridger had anything more to say, then gravely opened the door for his wife. Come, Grace. He walked with long steps back to the house, and for the first time in her life, Grace admired her husband. She felt that after all he was not unworthy of his authority. She touched his arm. I'm glad you did that, Paul. I felt very proud. He removed his arm quickly so that she shrank away. Did you think I was likely to be afraid of my gamekeeper? He answered disdainfully. What are you going to do about me? She asked. I don't know yet. I must think it over. All that you told me last night was true? Quite true. Why did you tell me? It was the only way to save those people. If I had the courage to do it a couple of hours earlier, that poor girl wouldn't have killed herself. He said no more, and silently they reached the house. For some days, Paul made no reference to his wife's confession, but went about the work of his estate, his parliamentary labors, with stolid method, and only Grace's new sympathy discerned the awful torment from which he suffered. He took care to speak naturally before the servants and his brother, but avoided to be alone with her. His back seemed strangely bent, and he walked with a listless torpor, as though his large limbs were grown suddenly too heavy to bear. His fleshy face was drawn and sallow, his eyelids puffy from want of sleep, and his eyes dim. At length, Grace could stand her misery no longer. She went to the library, where she knew he was alone, and softly opened the door. She sat at the table with blue books and paper spread in front of him, striving industriously to fit himself for the duties he took so seriously. But he did not read. He rested his face on his hand, staring straight in front of him. He started when his wife entered and looked at her with harassed eyes. I'm sorry to disturb you, Paul, but we can't go on much longer in this way. I want to know what you're going to do. I don't know, he said. I wish to do my duty. I suppose you're going to divorce me. He gave a groan, and pushing back his chair, stood up. Oh, Grace, Grace, why did you do it? You know how I worshipped you. I would have given my life to save you a moment's uneasiness. I trusted you with all my soul. Yes, I know all that. I've repeated it to myself a thousand times. He looked at her so helplessly that she could not restrain her pity. Would you like me to go away? Your mother can easily come down to you and you can talk it over with her. You know what she'd advise me to do, he cried. Yes. Do you want me to divorce you? She gave him a look of utter agony, but would not allow the gathering tears to fall from her eyes. With fierce self-reproach, she wished to excite in him with no atom of commiseration. He glanced away with the certain shame of his next question. Do you still care for Reggie Bassett? No, she cried exultantly. I loathe and detest and despise him. I know he's not worth a quarter of you. He threw up his hands helplessly. Oh, God, I wish I knew what to do. At first I could have killed you, and now I feel we can't go on as we are. Ought to do something. I can't forget the whole thing. I ought to hate you, but I can't. Notwithstanding everything, I love you still. 
If you go, I think I shall die. She looked at him thoughtfully, divining in some measure the emotions which tore him in sundry directions. It seemed due to his honor that he should divorce the errant wife, and yet he had not the heart to do it. Anger and shame were banished by utter sorrow, and then he could not bear the scandal and the public disgrace. Paul Castilian was a man of old-fashioned ideas, and it seemed to him proper for a gentleman to keep his name out of the newspapers. Nor did he like the modern notion that the wronged husband cuts a somewhat heroic figure. He remembered vividly his disgust when a member of his club, divorcing his wife, had sought in the smoking-room to excite sympathy by narration of the lady's infidelities. He was proud of his name and could not bear that it should be covered with ridicule. The very thought shamed him, so that he could scarcely face his wife. I leave myself entirely in your hands, she said at length. I will do whatever you wish. Can't you give me a little more time to think it over? I don't want to do anything hastily. I think we'd better decide at once. It'll be much better for you to settle it. You're making yourself ill. I can't bear to see you so awfully unhappy. Don't think about me. Think about yourself. What will you do if... He stopped, unable to continue. If you divorce me? No, I can't do that, he cried quickly. I dare say I am a doting, weak fool, and you'll despise me even more than you do. But I can't lose you altogether. Oh, Grace, you don't want me to divorce you? She shook her head. It would be very generous if you could spare me that. Will you be satisfied if I go live abroad? I promise that you'll have no cause to blame me again. We need tell people nothing. They'll think it's a sort of amicable separation. I dare say that would be the best thing, he said quietly. Then goodbye. She stretched out her hand to him, and the tears in her eyes made everything dim about her. He took it silently. I want to tell you once more, Paul, how bitterly I regret all the unhappiness I've caused you. I was never a good wife to you. I hope with all my heart that you'll be happier now. How can I be happy, Grace? You are all my happiness. I can't help it. All these days I've fought against it. I've done all I could. But still, even now, now that I know you've never cared for me at all, and the rest, I love you with all my heart. The tears ran down her wasted, colorless cheeks, and for a while she could not speak. She withdrew her hand and stood in front of him with head bent down. I don't ask you to believe me, Paul. I've lied to you and betrayed you, and you have the right to take my words as worthless. But I should like to tell you this before I go. I do love you now, honestly. During these last months of wretchedness, I've understood how kind and good you were, and I've been awfully touched by your great love for me, and you made me utterly ashamed of myself. Oh, I've been worthless and selfish. I've sacrificed you blindly to all my whims. I've never tried to make you happy, but I'm less of a cad than I was. It's because of you. And the other day, when you gave that man his gun, I was so proud of you, and I felt such a poor, mean creature. I could have fallen on my knees before you and kissed your hands. She took her handkerchief and dried her eyes, then forcing a smile. For one moment, she flushed at him a gay look, such as she had been accustomed to give. Don't think too badly of me, will you? Oh, Grace, he cried. I can't bear it. Don't go. I want you so badly. Let us try again. The color rushed to her face, and she went to him quickly. Paul, do you think you ever can forgive me? I tell you, I love you as I never loved you before. Let us try. He opened his arms, and with a cry of joy, she flung herself into them. She lifted her lips to him, and when he kissed her, she pressed more closely to him. My darling husband, she whispered. Oh, Grace, let us thank God for his mercy to us. End of section 22